one of the reasons that everybody's making dystopian sci-fi movies these days is because we see a future where there isn't enough or where we've depleted the Earth's oxygen resources, whatever, to the point where we can't live the way we want to and have. The future that we face is different than the past that any living human has faced. So this is what we have to do. This is what we have to do as a race, as a human race, in order to keep the one planet that we know of that has life on it still being a good home for life. This is Money Conscious from Millstone Evans Group. I'm your host, Sasha Millstone. Join me as we discuss investing, financial planning, and life. Visit us at millstoneevansgroup.com and thanks for joining us. Julie, I'm so excited that you're joining me for the inaugural launch of, of our podcast, Money Conscious, today. My pleasure an honor. (laughs) Well, I was so pleased that you accepted. I was very impressed when a couple days after the Russia-Ukraine war started, I got an email from Impacts, and uh, you guys were right on it, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But before we do, I want to introduce you to my audience. Julie and I met a long time ago, and when Julie was at Calvert, (laughs) I think you came into the investment world in about 1999, right, Julie? It's about right. And you started working at Calvert. You had quite an interesting career before you came into the investment world. You were Senior Associate and Project Director at the Congressional Office of Technology Assessment, and you were Vice President for Economic and Environmental Research at the Wilderness Society, and you were program manager for technology programs in the EPA policy office. So not all at the same time, (laughs) sequentially. (laughs) (laughs) That would have been a bit much. Yeah. (laughs) And then you joined Calvert and uh, you were with Calvert doing ESG research for a long time and joined Impacts and you're senior vice president for sustainable investing at Impacts now. And Impacts, of course, is the North American Division of Impacts Asset Management Group and Investment Advisor to the Pox World Fund. So before we dive in, what made you change from being a policy wonk to moving into the investment world? You know, it's it seems funny to say this now. It's going to sound a little corny too, but it the thing that guided my policy career was the idea that I could make the world a better place. And I, you know, it seemed obvious that you could do that through policy, that if we had better facts, we could make better policy. And if we, you know, had the right voices speaking up on behalf of the planet and the environment, our footprints would be brighter. I didn't realize you could do that with money. And then I got a call from a headhunter, you know, who said, I want to get you into the private sector. And my first reaction was, you've got to be crazy. Why would I do that? And why would they want me? I've spent my whole career in government and nonprofits. And he just said, check it out. So I did. And the rest is history. So I realized that sustainable investing was a thing. It wasn't called that back then. It was called SRI. But there was an idea that you could direct capital to things that were better for the world and for people, and that that would actually help to move markets. Seemed like a really good argument then and now. Agreed. Socially responsible investing is now environment, social, and government. (laughs) So ESG. But 
we've made huge strides over the course of our careers, I think. It's really gratifying to see how many investors today want to do this kind of research uh, before they make investments. Yeah, it is. I think that the last couple of years in particular, investors have really, really shown much more interest in it. And the growth has been spectacular over the last couple of years. So good to see. It's good to see people coming around. It's so great. So as I said at the outset, I was really impressed when a couple days after the war started, I got an email from Impacts and it said that you had already done a process to evaluate your portfolios in light of this shocking new development. So I I wanted to start out with you talking about what that process was and how quickly you really got to work on this. I didn't get that kind of communication from any other mutual fund company. Well, I'm glad you got it from us. That's a good thing. We're sort of fanatics about keeping really good records. So we keep records of, you know, every security we purchase and its characteristics. So where it operates, you know, a lot of financial data, a lot of governance data, its ESG profile, and then how it fits in with a tool that we call the Impacts Lens, which has eight categories of risk and seven categories of opportunity. And the risks and the opportunities both pertain to the transition to a sustainable economy. So it is in that light that we evaluate the risks and opportunities on the sustainability side. So we had a lot of data already. And obviously, you know, investment, you know this, your clients know this, I'm sure, is not about what has happened. It's about what's going to happen. So you're always trying to skate to where the puck is going to be. So if you see the puck bounce off the wall and go in a completely different direction, first thing you do is say, all right, well, what's happening in that direction? So when we saw the Russian invasion of the Ukraine, we knew that it was going to disrupt several parts of the market. Not, you know, and I don't mean to be putting, you know, making light of the fact that it's disrupted millions of people's lives. It's been dreadful. It's a human rights crisis. It's a human crisis. I don't mean to belittle that at all, but in my day job, I look after finance, right? So we look for, you know, well, do we have any exposure to Russia? In our case, it was relatively simple because we don't do a lot of sort of index investing. We have mostly actively managed funds or what we call the sort of halfway between actively managed and, you know, like the women's index and the international index and so forth that are really based on sustainability criteria too. So we didn't have to worry about the fact that our index or the benchmark might have a lot of Russia exposure in it. But more to the point, the impacts lens is the sort of the pole star that guides us. And there just aren't that many sustainability ideas coming out of Russia. You know, so there was no particular reason to invest in in a lot of Russian security, certainly. And a lot of, yes, there are companies, you know, in a lot of portfolios that have some exposure to Russia. And that is something you sometimes know about and sometimes don't, depending on what the company reports to you. So we gathered the information that we could on the securities that we held and went out to tell people, here's what, you know, here's what it looks like from our standpoint. Well, I thought it was fascinating because I wasn't even aware that you actually did sanction screening. So you immediately jumped into this and were able to do this sanction screening and I wanted you to talk a little bit about what that process is. It isn't, we don't screen for Russia specifically. 
We do not, in most of our funds, we don't invest in fossil fuels company, which is the majority of the stuff you can invest in in Russia anyway. So it was really the sustainability criteria, some of which are screens, a few of them are screens, like fossil fuels, for example, for most of our funds, or weapons for some of our funds, all of our funds, actually, that ruled out a lot of potential Russian investments. But for the most part, it was just basically looking for contributions to the sustainable economy that got us into places other than Russia. So, Julie, I I imagine when this conflict hit, because one of the impacts of it from a financial perspective was oil and gas stock prices went way up. And of course, you guys don't invest in fossil fuel energy. And so you must have had some pretty interesting conversations about how you thought that this was going to impact your portfolios and possibly short-term versus intermediate term. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Right. So principle one is there's nothing, and I do mean nothing, that outperforms all the time. So between about 2005 and 2020, energy stocks performed worse than any other sector in the S&P 500. And then in 2021, because of the pandemic and now because of the war, they're outperforming. We know because we don't invest in fossil fuel stocks that there are going to be times like this when energy markets rise for whatever reason, when we might not perform as well because of that. We also know, though, because of some work that we did on a tool that we call Smart Carbon, that the things that define energy stocks, the so-called factors, the forward PE, the, you know, some, the, dividend, the risk characteristics, and so forth, that energy efficiency stocks tend to behave the same way. So if you allocate to energy efficiency in your portfolio, you can get a lot of the characteristics of energy stocks in your portfolio without investing in energy stocks. So because we have invested a lot in energy efficiency, which is part of the sustainability transition, it helps. Does it completely offset the impact that these that the skyrocketing oil prices have? No. But, you know, there are always times when you know that your style is not going to perform as well. We're looking to the long term. So how long is this war going to go on? If it goes on a year, can we survive it? Yes, we kind of have to. We also know, however, that because Europe is, it was a real shock for Europe. We get some, like, I don't know, what, 10% of our oil from Russia, just nothing. You know, we can easily make that up. We get no gas from Russia. Germany needs, you know, Russian gas is 40% of its electricity or powers 40% of its electricity. It's even higher in some of the other countries in Europe. So it's much bigger shock for them. What this did was build the consciousness in Europe that their transition to a sustainable energy economy or a more low carbon economy, which is not based on fossil fuels, has to happen faster. So in the medium to long term, this will stimulate a lot of the clean energy and energy efficiency stocks. In the short term, not so much, but in the short term, anything can happen. Right. And often does. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so yes. I do think it's going to be a further awakening of consciousness of just why fossil fuel companies just are not the way that we need to be developing in the world. I think this will have an impact globally, not just financially, which obviously that's true. I'm hoping and, and um, interested in, in your research around it and perspective, but I'm hoping actually 
once we're past the crisis, if this won't accelerate the transitions away from fossil fuels and possibly towards, well, cleaner buildings, <laughs> more efficient buildings, for example, and other energy, other parts of the energy transition, especially in the EU. Yeah, there are all kinds of reasons to have a cleaner energy economy, to have a low carbon economy. If, you know, the one of the things that depending on gas in particular and coal, which have been our major ways to generate electricity in the past, has brought us is the existence of these sort of huge power plants and then hundreds, if not thousands of miles of transmission to get all that electricity to everybody, which means that if you have one of those goes out or something, you have the situation that we had in California, right, with all the fires and the rolling brownouts and, you know, things like that. And we, what we saw in Texas with the cold snap, if you have sort of centralized energy production and really widely distributed transmission, that just puts you in a vulnerable situation. One of the nice things about the clean energy transition is that opens the way to more district energy and more sort of locally produced energy. I live in Colorado. I know you do. You know, it's a great place to be if you like solar power because the sun shines all the time, most of the time. And so I put solar panels on my roof and I bought an electric vehicle that I plug in. And that is a, you know, that is one way of getting yourself a little bit more free from this whole dependence on some distant power plant. I think that is going to be part, a, a motif of the energy transmission anywhere that policymakers want it to be one. I mean, I think one of the things that could happen in the short term is that the, Russia still has a lot of fossil fuel assets. They have a lot of oil, a lot of gas, a lot of coal. I think it is quite possible that China will use this opportunity to go bargain shopping in Russia and buy up a lot of those assets. Does that mean that China doesn't have to do a clean energy transition? Of course it does. And it knows that. And its five-year plan says that it's going to do that transition, but it's on a different path than the rest of the world. So I think, you know, the impact is going to be different depending on the region and the country and the policymakers. But in the long run, for the sake of the planet and for the sake of ourselves, we have to get off fossil fuels. And we pretty much need to do it by the middle of this century. That's everywhere. And the impact isn't just on fossil fuels, of course. What do you think about the impact of the war on soft commodity prices, agricultural goods? That's going to be a big issue. Yeah, it already is in, in a lot of places. So Russia and Ukraine, between the two of them, they're both in the top 10 producers of wheat worldwide. I don't know if this will impact Russia's wheat production as much as Ukraine's, but clearly it's, it's going to have a deep impact on Ukraine's. Some African countries are already feeling the pinch. We don't depend on that very much, on wheat produced in, in Europe, but there are several European countries and a lot of African countries that do. So, yes, this will raise food prices, already has raised food prices for some soft commodities worldwide, and particularly in countries where that depend on those imports. Wheat isn't necessarily, the, it isn't quite the same as an oil market where there is kind of a global price for oil. There is more local variation, but the you know, the impact is still going to ripple. So we will probably all see some inflation in food prices. In fact, we already have um, as a result of this. It's terribly unfortunate, but it also brings the sharper focus to what we need to do to our food system to make a more sustainable economy anyway, which is to depend more on local production and try to make our food production as sustainable as possible. Are there going to be disruptions? Of course. 
you know, one thing we know about climate change is that it's going to make for more heat, more droughts, more storms, and those are going to affect agricultural production too. When Hurricane Katrina shut down the port of New Orleans, shut down for about a week after the hurricane, the U.S. food prices went up by 3% because so much food moves through that port. Well, newsflash, every port in the world is at sea level. So every single one of them is vulnerable to coastal storms and sea level rise. So this is, you know, I don't want to call this a test run, but it's something we're going to have to be able to get used to and find better ways of distributing the food that we do produce, waste less food and produce it more sustainably. And don't some of your funds focus on agricultural advances in efficiency? Yep. Can you talk a little bit about some of those technologies or approaches? Yeah. So one of the things, one of the big ideas in in that fund is like precision agriculture. So if you own a thousand acres, you're a big producer, or even if you own 600 acres or 60, not every bit of your land needs the same thing at the same time, right? In the past, farmers didn't have access to technology that says, okay, I only need to water over here and I need more fertilizer over here because this soil is more depleted. Now we have the tools for precision agriculture, both the sensing technologies and the testing technologies, as well as the geospatial technologies like Trimble and Garmin and stuff like that, that allow farmers to do more sort of precision agriculture. So you don't need to apply, you know, massive amounts of fertilizer on your entire field. You can put it where it's needed. You don't need to water everywhere at the same time. You water where it's needed. There are other new technologies for building up soil for increasing soil fertility, additives to soils and things like that. So you can improve the yield of a farm or an agricultural field without necessarily just, you know, treating it as if it was one sort of unvarying plot. You know, you can do precision agriculture. That's one of the big ideas there. I love that. And I, I think what we're talking about is crisis versus opportunity, you know. I mean, it's just, it's impossible to say yet, but this crisis is going to get a lot of people thinking and working hard to propel forward the transitions that we're going through. And Julie, are there other commodities that are affected by this crisis? Yeah. So Russia is a huge producer of nickel. And so that brought a lot of focus onto the sort of what we call the electro minerals. So there are certain kinds of minerals that you need to produce more sustainable energy, copper, nickel, cobalt, lithium, things like that. And those are not distributed evenly around the world. And a lot of them are in countries with totalitarian regimes in place. It's not just Russia. It could be, you know, there's a lot of lithium in China, for example. It's one of the world's biggest producers of that. So whatever we do for our energy system, if you apply it on a global scale, we, if there's almost, there's bound to be sort of new power relationships formed by where those things are and where you have to get them. So our transition to electric vehicles and to cleaner electricity, renewable electricity, is going to bring about some new dominance in markets globally that we're going to have to contend with. Can you, you know, can we see our way to that? Yes, of course, we can see what's happening. We know what we need to do. But the trouble with minerals is that they are where they are. You can't you know, I mean, I could say, well, gosh, I would love to, I'll just get mine from California. Well, if California doesn't have them, you just, you're kind of out of luck. Now, the one huge frontier in terms of minerals availability is the ocean. 
And there are lots and lots of minerals that come up on mid-ocean ridges. There are lots of them that come up in the, that come out of the, our so-called black smokers, the places where the geothermally heated water comes spurting up from the, below the ocean. And the stuff that comes out of those is called polymetallic sulfides. Polymetallic means there's a lot of minerals in them. Can you mine those? There's been interest in that for a long time. But again, first of all, the mid-ocean ridges are really deep. And mining anything that's really deep is really hard. And in some cases, we don't have the technology. So just because something exists on Earth doesn't mean that it's available to everybody. We're going to have to be really conscious of what our choices mean in terms of what it takes to satisfy them. Fascinating, though. I just learned something brand new. I didn't know about those parts in the ocean that were shooting up minerals. It's fascinating. I wonder if we could spend a minute on the topic of making homes and buildings more energy efficient, because it does seem to me and what I've been reading lately, that that might be one of the most hopeful things that's actually starting to happen right now. Yeah, I agree with you. It has been for quite some time to make sort of a self-sufficient building or one that is as sort of undependent on outside systems as possible in terms of energy and water is kind of an ideal and something that does help make you more resistant, more resilient to shocks that could happen, whether it's a hurricane or a supply shock or something like that. There are so many ways to make a building more energy efficient that we already know about insulation, you know, better windows, using certain kinds of glazing and certain additives to the glass in order to reduce emissivity from windows. You can make solar shingles for your roof and you can buy those. You can buy your own battery for your house that you, you know, that stores the energy you make when the sun is shining. If you don't use it all, there are a thousand ways. (laughs) They all cost money. They're not you know, they're not free and they're not cheap. Just because you get sunlight doesn't mean you're going to convert it into energy without somebody else's help and a lot of capital. But more and more you're seeing, I think California passed a law that said buildings built after a certain date have to have solar power. You know, the more we see things like that, the more it's going to become sort of normal for people to see buildings as their own power supply, as their own, you know, sort of a closed loop water system. And that will also help with the drain on global resources. I read about they're trying to make windows that will themselves be solar. So they'll create energy, the windows themselves. That that kind of blows my mind. To think I know about. one's head explodes. But, you know, <laughs> who was it who said this? I can't remember. But somebody really smart who said that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. <laughs> and a lot of the stuff that we have now is when I was growing up would have been called magic, but you know, we need it. Yeah. The Jetsons didn't really uh, show <laughs> us the future, but it's even more amazing than that. Well, one last topic I wanted to touch on briefly, because I feel like I don't know enough about it, which is the global hydrogen economy. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, where we are with that and what are the developments that are happening you know, how Hawks is thinking about this? Sure. So hydrogen is, when you burn a fossil fuel, the thing that gives you all the the heat that you need to convert to electricity or the heat that you need just for heat is hydrogen. The carbon goes out the tailpipe, right? So if you can take the carbon out and just burn hydrogen, it's much more efficient. That's what a fuel cell does. Essentially, a fuel cell just generates hydrogen. 
as its power or battery. So the hydrogen economy, the promise of hydrogen is huge because it is A, the most abundant element in the universe. And B, you know, it's, you know, you don't have to mine it. You can get it out of existing materials for the most part. Now, the problem, and of course, there's always a hitch, right? Hydrogen is almost always bonded to something else. It doesn't come in pure form naturally very much. So if you have to take it apart from water, if you have to take it out of a hydrocarbon, out of a fossil fuel, out of natural gas, for example, that's called electrolysis. You can do that. It costs. It's not completely cheap. And it takes energy to do it. So if you're burning fossil fuels to take hydrocarbons apart to produce hydrogen, you're kind of losing some of the benefit. So there is a an idea called green hydrogen, where the energy that you use to do the electrolysis to produce the hydrogen fuel is, in fact, green energy. So if it's wind or solar or geothermal, that's called green hydrogen. That has been hyped for 20 years, and it sort of goes in waves. You know, you'll see people get really excited about it, and then a couple ideas won't work out, and then it'll cool off, and then again. That is the way new technology develops. We're now entering a new period of hype. And this time people are saying, you know, but it might be real this time. The cost of renewable energy really has come down by an order of magnitude in many cases. The availability of raw materials is not that much of an issue. So I think it's just a matter of if we're going to have a hydrogen economy, we will need some new infrastructure as well. But the technologies are being developed. There's a lot of research going on in them. I think it's only a matter of time before we see you know, more investable ideas that aren't venture capital in the hydrogen economy. Could unlock a whole new potential for us. Yes, it could. Well, I sure do appreciate you joining me today. It's a fascinating conversation. Do you have anything that you would like to talk to our audience about before we wrap up? Just to say that the idea of investing in sustainability isn't really optional anymore. It is something that we're going to have to do, or we're going to have a future that is not very bright for very many people. And there's a lot of, one of the reasons that everybody's making dystopian sci-fi movies these days is because we see a future where there isn't enough or where we've depleted the earth's oxygen resources, whatever, to the point where we can't live the way we want to and have. The future that we face is different than the past that any living human has faced. So all of the things we've been talking about today, this is what we have to do. This is what we have to do as a race, as a human race, in order to keep the one planet that we know of that has life on it still being a good home for life. Very, very profound. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Money Conscious. Visit us at millstoneevansgroup.com. You can follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, I'm Sasha Millstone. Sasha Millstone is the president and an investment advisor with the Millstone Evans Group, a registered investment advisor located in Colorado. All opinions expressed by Sasha and her podcast guests on this show are their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of the Millstone Evans Group. All statements and opinions expressed are based upon information considered reliable, although it should not be relied upon as such. Any statements or opinions are subject to change without notice. Information presented is for educational purposes only and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. Investments involve risk and unless otherwise stated, are not guaranteed. 
Information expressed does not take into account your specific situation or objectives and is not intended as recommendations appropriate for any individual. Listeners are encouraged to seek advice from a qualified tax, legal, or investment advisor to determine whether any information presented may be suitable for their specific situation. Past performance is not indicative of future performance.